Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by retired Air Force Colonel Laurel Buffberkel, a C-130 navigator, passionate University of Michigan alumna, and football fan turned hockey playing fanatic. In 2015, Buff was one of three surviving passengers of a helicopter crash in Kabul, Afghanistan. Buff's inspiring message of resiliency and cultivating community is both infectious and humbling. For this episode, you can view photos that accompany Buff's road to recovery on her Facebook page, One Tough Bird. That's tough is in T-U-F-F. You can also view photos on my podcast website at melissa-ritz.com. Buff, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. You and I were recently introduced by Bethany Miller, who recently did an episode with me, and this is our first time connecting in person, if you will. So I'm hearing a majority of your story today for the first time, along with the audience, and I know a part of your journey, but there's so much more to discover. So share with us where you're from originally and what led you to serving in the Air Force? Sure. I grew up in Michigan, uh, just north of Detroit, one of the suburbs of Detroit, and I went to University of Michigan to be an orthodontist. I thought that was what my purpose in life was was supposed to be, so I went there. And I met some friends who were in Air Force ROTC, and I had given some consideration to an academy or whatever, but I really wanted to go to dental school. And so I, I show up in Michigan and my freshman year, I come across some folks that are in ROTC, Air Force ROTC. And there's no real military background in my family. My grandfather served in the Navy, didn't really know him. Um, my dad didn't serve because his, his mom was blind. He was one of a, a caretaker and, and whatnot. So he didn't serve in Vietnam or anything like that. Um, it's not a lot of military background to draw me into military service necessarily. But these folks were like, they had teamwork. I'm a, I'm a sports person. I've played sports. Uh, and so I saw this, I thought, this is kind of neat, whatever. I'm busy. I'm doing my thing. And I hate organic chemistry and some of these other classes. And I really thought about, went, do I really want to do this kind of environment for several more years to get that degree in dental, you know, the dental degree and then orthodontics and specialize. And I saw these folks and I looked, I went, you know, I love the teamwork. I love the fitness. I love all these different things. I think I might want to give that a try. So I remember going home for Christmas, my sophomore year, talking to my parents. And it was an interesting conversation because I think I think I want to do this. Um, and so I missed the cut to do the two-year program. So I had taken an extra year in college. So I did, actually did five years, which I actually recommend to people because I, I took some other really interesting classes. And, you know, when you show up to school, you think you're, you know what you're supposed to do and you're afraid when it, that isn't really what maybe speaks to your heart or your soul. So I had that opportunity to kind of see some other stuff. Um, and so I graduated. I went off to navigator school and the rest. 27 and a half years later, I retired from the Air Force. So um, completely great decision. Um, I'm grateful that I was exposed to that opportunity, which was I sure when I did it, no, as I was going through school, but it became more and more, yes, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so 27 and a half years certainly wasn't all joy and, and kittens and, you know, and fireworks and stuff. It was, it, there was adversity along the way in many different forms, but it was an awesome opportunity to serve my country and serve with some great people, go to some pretty interesting places, some really cool places and, and grow as a person. ROTC really helped me grow as a person in college. So I started out, like I said, at Navigator training at a base that is closed now, unfortunately, out in Sacramento, California. And I was picked up to go into our C-141 aircraft, which is a, a cargo airplane, which is now retired, which ages me. And so I did a tour there. I did some other things. I switched over to our C-130s. Uh, and, and as a navigator, I tell people, where, pilots, where to go. Without me, they're lost. I tell people, you know, they see my uniform, they see me in a flight suit, and they see the wings, and they assume, oh, you must be a pilot. I'm like, well, no, I'm a navigator. I actually work for a living. I tell them where to go. You know, <laughs> GPS has replaced me in the plane, but it does not replace me as far as in the cockpit, the, the entertainment level. Um, you know, you can't replace the interaction of a person uh, in the cockpit. So so I did both the C1, C-141, C-130, and a lot of staff tours, lots of places around the world. And, you know, I was stationed in Korea. I was stationed in Canada. Um, and again, lots of travel all over the place doing my job. Yeah, I was an exchange officer in Canada. That was a really cool opportunity because I was from Michigan, so it was really kind of neat. And I can count to 10 in French because of Canadian Sesame Street, because we could watch that in Michigan. Uh, Channel 9 was CBC, so Hockey Night in Canada, I know all about that. But Canada was a really cool assignment. Um, my favorite was my time in Monterey, California, where I got a master's degree at Naval Postgraduate School, and that was a wonderful 18 months. 
but I had tours in DC, a couple tours down at our C-130 base in Texas, our base up in Washington State, uh, which is where I did my C-141 training. And then I did three tours here uh, in the Scott Air Force Base area, which is right outside of Illinois. That's our headquarters of our Air Mobility Command, and it's where our tanker air lift control center is. So our command and control for all of our strategic airlift, tactical airlift when we do it, uh, air refueling, uh, and our logistics, U.S. Transportation Command is all stationed here, not too far from where, where I live right now. And so that's where I retired from, uh, is, is a tour at Headquarters Air Mobility Command back in 2018. We'll talk about that uh, retirement stuff a little bit later. So the elephant in the room tour that I had was the opportunity to deploy in 2015 as an air advisor to the Afghan Air Force. And it was certainly not something that was on my radar, certainly not something I was interested in doing. Um, the Air Force Colonels Group said, hey, we need somebody to go do this and we think you should. And I said, okay. And I did not have enough time to say, no, I would just like to retire. Um, as a colonel, if I had said no at that time, I would have retired as a lieutenant colonel. So I said, I made it, you know, did a personal cost benefit analysis and said, okay, I will go do this for a year because it was supposed to be for a year and um, continue my time so I can retire when the time comes, I can retire as a, as a full colonel. So that was a lot of training I had to go do. And I was stationed in Canada at the time. It was not, not easy. Um, the timeline was very tight, but I went over to Afghanistan in July of 2015 and the role I played in the advising wing there was training, gender integration, recruiting, um, manpower, personnel, uh, and then also their Afghan Air, kind of the, the equivalent of the Afghan Air Force Academy. And so my counterpart that I advised with was an Afghan Air Force one-star general. He was the director of training. And there were, there were several colonels that we advised with that were in charge of like the personnel stuff. Uh, and then I had a master sergeant did recruiting and then we all kind of worked on some of the, the our, my personnel side worked on the, the gender integration portfolio, which was important to NATO. So within that was one of our project was to update the Afghan Air Force's manning documents. It, it says these are the people, this is kind of the, the rank level or the experience level, how many do we need, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that needed to be updated. And so my folks and I, that was one of our projects. Uh, and that included the fact that they were going to be getting a new aircraft, um, the A-29 Super Tucano light attack aircraft. They were going to be able to do airstrikes. Um, they were going to be able to do some close air support stuff that our, our, our Air Force does with our fighters and some other aircraft to support our ground forces, which was a brand new thing that they're going to be able to do. So you got to create a squadron. You got to figure out, you know, what should the evolution of this professional organization look like? And so we worked on that. And so in October... It was time to brief those updates to the U.S. command that kind of held, I won't say the purse strings, but kind of their purview was to, was to look at these uh, the structure of the Afghan Defense Force. And because this is the Afghan military and we're advising them, we were going to go and support the Afghan colonel who was going to give that briefing of here's the, the revisions of the proposed changes and updates to the Afghan Air Force document. In the week leading up to that, my two master sergeants... Greg Cuse um, comes over and Andrea was still there. And so uh, Greg and Andrea do their turnover and stuff and they coordinate the travel for us. We're going to take a helicopter ride to, to the NATO headquarters on Sunday afternoon because you can't drive in Kabul. It's not exactly safe um, to drive. There's risks of you know, explosive devices and other things like that. So a lot of people in the NATO construct traveled around Kabul and around Afghanistan for that matter by helicopter or or aircraft or whatever. So they had a robust, fairly robust system of being able to take people places. We were gonna to fly to, NAF, to the NATO headquarters Sunday afternoon, spend the night, get up the next morning, walk over to the, the, the Ministry of Defense, come back to NATO and leave and head back to where we were. So on the 10th of October, um, Saturday, we all got ready. We did one last you know, presentation. Oh, and Andrea had asked, hey, can I leave? Cause she wasn't supposed to leave until like Tuesday or Wednesday, and we asked Greg, are you good? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. So she got to leave. She said, there's C-130 people leaving on Saturday. Can I hitch a ride with them? We said, sure. So we we got to fair world, you know, see her off on Saturday. And that's important because the only picture I have of my two folks that did not survive the helicopter crash, we took to say goodbye to her. She's in the center of the photo. Um, and my two folks, because Greg was so new, I didn't really have a lot of pictures, but my major, Phyllis, had been around a couple, she'd gotten there a couple more, couple weeks before I did. So grateful of, to have taken that photo on Saturday when we said 
goodbye to Andrea. And Andrea, you know, deals with the fact that she would have gone with us if she had still been around. And she car- she does carry that. She does absolutely carry that. Uh, but she just made chief a couple uh, month to two months ago, and I presided at that virtually thanks to COVID. So Sunday afternoon, you know, get ready to go, and it's a helicopter ride. It's about five minutes to travel from Kabul International and the NATO the little base there to NATO headquarters. No big deal, right? I've, I'd done it once before. We had gone to a gender integration conference, NATO's gender integration conference at NATO back in September. So it wasn't something that was unusual to me. It's just the way people traveled. We got on the helicopter and we sat down. There was no, hey, you need to sit here or there or whatever. And, and that literally, the decision where you sat literally meant whether you lived or died that day. And, and what was really cool was it was two British Puma Mark II helicopters. I've never been in those. So we get in and sit down. There's six passengers and three crew members. So two pilots up front and there was an officer in the back. I don't know if that's normal, if it's an enlisted person or an officer in their crew, but in this day it was an officer. Uh, so I got on through the right-hand door and went to the left side and went to the farthest, as back as I could go. Now there's centerline seats. It's not a big helicopter. There's four centerline seats facing left and four centerline seats facing right. And in the backmost left-facing seat is a Lithuanian uh, officer, Polos Malusius. And I just got on, I sat down next to him. I put my backpack in the seat next to me because we're overnight, so I have this backpack of stuff. And then Roy, my contractor, who had been in the in the army, but had done, um, I guess you could say, an advisor to the advisors as far as consulting. And he had done a lot of work and, and had done several tours in Afghanistan as an advisor. He's next to me. On the right-hand side, in the far back, back to back to Pofalos is Greg. Back to back to me is Phyllis, my major. The seat next to her is empty. And then on the frontmost right-facing seat is a uh, French contractor for NATO. And so there's two helicopters. And so we lift off, we get ready to lift off. Again, about a five-minute flight, about 4.30 in the afternoon. There's no real weather issues or anything like that. It's kind of a nice day. And they left the door open. Now, as we're starting to lift off, I lean over and I look towards my right, look towards the cockpit, because I'm curious. I'm 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 an aviator, you know, What's the cockpit look like? What's going on up there? You know, and as I do that, I reach over and I touch Phyllis' shoulder and say, well, who are getting to fly? Now, Phyllis had been a high school German teacher. She joined the Air Force late in her life, later in her career, not late in life, but later in her career um, after 9-11. She's a personnel officer. So she had done several tours as a personnel officer uh, in the Air Force and then went to McGill University in Montreal got a degree, I think it was a German degree, and went to the academy. She taught German there. And then she had the opportunity to interview to be the aide to the three-star general that's the superintendent of the academy. At the time, that was General Michelle Johnson. And so when the opportunity for Phil's to have a, a, a deployment in her career field came up, they're like, hey, you, you should do this. So she did. And so that's what she, her background, what she was doing. She was only a couple of years younger than me. Um, I learned so much from her as, uh, about how to be good with to and with people. Even our third country nationals that served us our food and stuff, she would learn some of bits of their language and she would talk to them and she would talk to them more than, you know, a lot of us were courteous and whatever, but she was a little bit of a little bit deeper level. And, and so her loss when she passed away in a helicopter crash definitely affected a wide arc of people, um, a wide arc of people. And so that's who's in the helicopter. Um, like I said, we lift off. And it's only about a five-minute flight. We're following the other helicopter. And so we go over there, and we go to the NATO headquarters. And where you land at NATO headquarters is a soccer field. 10,000 landings a year. And I, and, and I should say, a lot of what I'm going to tell you, I absolutely don't remember to this day and never will, according to the, the uh, traumatic brain injury folks. I didn't make, literally, my body didn't make the memory of what happened. So what I'm telling you is either people I've gotten to talk to or are part of the story, and I have the British report which is a 100-plus page report. Some of the pictures I show in my presentation are from the report, some of the jarring uh, crash photos. I know that's a photo that's going to cause emotion in my audience when I show it because it's it's, it's terrible looking. I mean, any that anybody who lived through that is, is crazy. Uh, so I have the British report. It's compelling reading, uh, especially when you're passenger B uh, in a report, and that's you. Um, and you don't remember it. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful reading. It's pretty compelling reading. Um, and so we came into land at that soccer field and 
as we did that, there were people on the field. Now we were a scheduled arrival. We were about 15 minutes late. There had been some, uh, a bit of a delay leaving the other place. So the lead helicopter saw those people, determined it was not safe for us to land, which if there's people there, it's not gonna be safe. And they said, hey, let's go back around, try and do this again. So we, we, did, we proceeded to do that. And as we did that, our two pilots, like start talking about some of the ground reference points, things on the ground, like the minister, like the uh, the palace there in Kabul and whatever. And as they're doing that, they lose sight of the lead helicopter, which is for people flying in visual formation, That's that contributes to the crash. It doesn't cause it, but it contributes to the crash. So they realize they've lost sight of lead, so they make a right-hand turn. And as they do that, there's this thing called a persistent threat detection system surveillance balloon that's above our camp. It's kind of like a little white blimp looks like a little blimp and it's tethered to the ground by a pretty robust cable that has electronics in it and power, whatever. And they knew where that was. I mean, that was part of, you know, the crew briefs and stuff, but they lost situational awareness relative to where they were. So as we make that right-hand turn, we're in that, doing that right-hand turn, we actually strike the tether of that balloon. And that contributes, the fact that we strike it contributes it. And these words are important to me because the Brits figured out what actually caused the crash. And the cra what actually causes this crash of this helicopter isn't that we struck it, it's what the tether does as it interacts with the helicopter. So not, the, not, the, not that we struck it itself, but what happens after with the tether and how it gets caught in the helicopter and the damage that it does and causes the helicopter not to be flyable anymore is basically what's happened. So for 17 seconds, the pilot's like, oh my gosh, you know, they're doing their thing. And that tether is kind of doing stuff and it gets on the back spine of, of the helicopter and works its way into a three to five millimeter gap in the top cowling along the spine of the helicopter. And so it gets on the back spine. And so that little tail rotor in the back is really important because it's in, in the laws of physics and in motion, that needs to counterbalance the main rotor blades. Well, if that stops working, that helicopter's not gonna fly anymore. So 17 seconds after we strike the tether, that actually happens. From the time that happens to the time we hit the ground going over 4,000 feet per minute, seven seconds. But in that time, the pilot shut the engines off, which is huge in my mind. Um, they're wrestling with this helicopter and we actually crash into the NATO compound because it's kind of important to think about the fact that our flight path is not in a safe, necessarily a safe environment. So somehow those, those two pilots managed to, to wrestle that thing. So we crash into the NATO compound. And that in and of itself, to me, I looked at that and go, yeah, the pilots did some things that contribute to what happened, but they also did some things that contribute to the fact that any of us are alive and more people in that NATO compound didn't, didn't pass away as well. Um, and so I have this balance of that, that, you know, all of the training that our, that our, that our military does. And sometimes, you know, we, we, you know, you were, you've been there, you're like, ah, you know, I, this is so boring and droll and whatever, but it's because it's for muscle memory, you know, so that we do things and we don't have to think about it. And so, we, um, as we went, hit the ground, we kind of were cocked nose up, cocked to the right. So everybody on the right-hand side was killed. So the five on the right-hand side were killed. The pilot, the door gunner, loadmaster, you know, person in the back, that French contractor, Phyllis, my major, and Greg, my master sergeant, were killed. On the left-hand side, the four of us all survived in various stages of disrepair. So you've got the, the pilot up front. He never flew again. I know he was very seriously hurt. Um, Roy, my contractor, was light, physically not hurt too terribly, um, but he had been in the Afghan Air Force headquarters building back in 2011 when an Afghan officer had walked in and shot and killed nine U.S. advisors. Literally, he was in the building that day. He was actually advising with the Colonel Mohammed, who we were going to go meet to do this briefing the next day in 2015. Uh, and so he had to jump out of a second floor window to get out of that building. So you can think as he as he's in this wreckage, you know, he's still carrying that. Um, and so I, I'm mindful of his, you know, what was going on with his mind, his heart, you know, and then his physical stuff. I broke my neck and we'll talk a bit more about that and a few other, you know, the, the main thing was a broken neck. And then next to me, Povalos, uh, he had some serious, serious injuries. Um, I'm really the only person who went back to work full time. Uh, later down the road, Povalos is still in the Lithuanian Air Force. We're obviously life buddies for, for the rest of our lives. We're pretty fairly close, as you can be, you know, half a world away. Um, but he had a uh, brain bruise and some other stuff. He had uh, some surgery on the scapula of his left shoulder uh, later at lunch to when I was there. That's where we actually met. Um, and so we were, you know, we had injuries, but we were still alive. 
And so within 15 seconds, people from the buildings are right near, because we crashed into the, probably one of the, lar the, the wider boulevards in the NATO compound that you could probably put that helicopter, other than the, than, than the landing zone itself, that's probably one of the places it would be the least impactful. It's pretty incredible. When you Google this, this, this crash out there in the web, it, it says five killed, five injured. And I'll talk about the fifth injured person a little bit later uh, down the road. And if I don't, remind me to do that for you. But only, that's it. The five, 10 people were injured or killed in this crash. And it could have been so much worse because it rammed into, we, we crashed into the NATO compound where there's a whole lot of people working and doing stuff, you know. And so within the 15 seconds after people are running out and responding to this crash, and they kind of run towards the front of the helicopter because obviously there's people in the front, you know, the pilots. So they go get there and Roy is waving his arm out of the open door in the back. I'm yelling, get me out of here again. I don't remember. Okay, so I don't, what I don't remember from is as we descended to land and we didn't finish that landing, that's the last coherent thing I remember. And that I, I remember kind of seeing the concrete walls that are, you know, security around the, the landing zone as we came and we didn't finish the landing. I remember kind of going, huh, that's kind of weird. Why didn't we finish it? And that's it until later down the road when I'm in a hospital bed a, a while later with a collar on waking up you know, or, or coming back into my story. It's not waking up, it's coming back into my story saying, where, where are Phyllis and Greg and Roy, what's going on? You know, the rest of this story I'm telling you now is what I've been able to put together, which is pretty fabulous. And I'm very grateful to have that because I will not most likely never have my own memories of it. Um, and so people running towards it. So I'm yelling, get me out of here. Uh, Roy's got his arm out, so the people realize there's people in the back, so they come towards us, and, and these people are people who are like you and me, um, service people of all different, you know, several different countries, several different services from the U.S. side, and they're people that represent the best of our human character. Um, some true people who were selfless ran towards providing aid to people. Uh, and it, I kind of liken it to, you know, I live out here in the country, but if there's a, if something happens on the road right out here in front of my house, I like to think I'm going to run out there and, and help. Um, and so they run towards that. People had fire extinguishers because they shut the engines off. Uh, there was not a lot of, there was obviously fuel was everywhere. It was spilling all over the place. People that ran towards the helicopter had to contend with fuel all over the place. The fire extinguishers helped. There was a little bit of flames, I, I, I think, from the exhaust manifold of, of the engines. But other than that, it really it could have been a huge big fireball and probably should have been, and it wasn't. So Roy, they got him out at about, it was 11 minutes and 25 seconds. Um, and they got in by me, and I, I later got to talk to and meet some of the people who are part of this. And so this is where I... I have some of their story and some of actually the statements that they wrote, they sent to me as I was piecing this together as I was recovering. And one of them, one of them, it was a Marine captain, Trey Kennedy, told me that, you know, I was lifting my hips and helping them get me out. And he said, which is incredible because I have a, a broken neck and I don't even know that. I'm just, adrenaline can do some amazing things for you. And so I was trying to help them get me out because Povlos was still trapped. You know, I didn't know what was going on with the people on the right-hand side. And so they got me out at about 15 minutes and 20 some odd seconds. Povolos, it took them 90 minutes because they had to cut a hole in the back. They had to go in the back because the helicopter was so crushed that just the guy sitting next to me, I was 15 minutes. It took them 90 minutes to get him out, which is just, you know, incredibly sobering to realize just how badly wrecked that helicopter was. Um, and so they get me out and they, and they kind of put me next, you know, off to the side and they're doing their stuff. A funny thing an inter a crazy thing for people that know me it's perfectly makes the most it makes complete sense but as i'm laying there i say the following thing which has been corroborated by two or three other people i'm getting too old for this shit sorry to, <laughs> I podcast. but i said that and you know for people that know me it's just like oh yeah that's buff you know and actually somebody at hockey practice said that last week and i started laughing and i said i that's just funny to hear that in this context of you know skating at practice. And so I told him, well, I said that after the helicopter crash. So I'm laying there. I don't know I have a broken neck. I'm complaining that my neck hurts or whatever. Now in the lead helicopter, the other helicopter was a US um, Navy Lieutenant Commander. She was coming back to NATO headquarters, but she has some medical background. She actually um, said they thought we'd been shot down. Their perspective, because there's a threat, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, they didn't know what happened to us. 
you know, they thought we'd been shot down. So they had to wait, they land. She comes over to see if she can help out because she's got a medical background. She sees me laying there. She's like, oh, don't touch that colonel, lock her neck down because nobody had. Uh, and absolutely probably helped save me from finishing breaking my neck and take and, and dying from it because uh, I'll talk I'll talk through what what injury I had and how how critical it was uh, and so her telling them to secure my neck literally saved my life and I didn't even know that none of the stuff I was even aware of um, and so they continue their rescue efforts but they 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 get a helicopter. It's going to take us back to NATO uh, to Kabul International, where there's a more robust medical clinic. Because they're at NATO, they had like a little clinic. It wasn't really big, um, and it wasn't set up to deal with something like this for sure. And so I've met, gotten talked to, uh, and meet some people who got feels very ready to go home. Um, and what they did, and there's one uh, Army NCO, non commissioned officer, who actually when they brought Phyllis in. She kicked all the guys out of the room, and she said, "I'm getting the major ready to go home to her family." And uh, and that's what those folks had to do. There were people running around the compound looking for ice um, because they needed lots of ice uh, for what they were going to do to help. Because uh, in the U.S., an Air Mobility Command and Transportation Command, two uh, two of our most important airlift missions we have is to bring home our fallen and air air medical evacu uh, evacuation, which. I'm a, a customer of that now. I, my first check ride evaluation flight in my 141 career was bringing a baby from Guam to Hickam, a premature baby who needed to be medically evacuated. Uh, I have commanded a squadron that's, that's flown air evacuation missions. Um, I've done some of, the, some of them in Afghanistan in the early days of 2001-2002. Uh, I've worked at the Tango Control Center with command and control them, and now I'm a customer of that service. And so they fly me back to that medical clinic. And that's where I come back into the story. That's where I'm in a bed, the bed, I've got the collar on and I'm like, where are Phyllis and Greg? And they're like, Hey, don't worry about that right now. And I see my leadership, my wing commander, all those people. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, and they're looking pretty serious because they had seen the severity of my broken neck. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we need to get you up to Bagram air base, which is about 50 miles away. It's the main uh, medical facility in Afghanistan. Uh, but <laughs> you need to go by helicopter. I'm like, wait, what? Are you guys nuts? Did you see? Are you crazy? And but I knew that was the safest way to go. And I didn't know I had just had a ride from NATO headquarters back over. I didn't. That's the ride. I don't remember. They sent me up to to Craig, where I spent the night. And so I got there. And the thing was, is they let me. They didn't like confine me to my bed. I was able to walk around. I had a collar on. And oh, and I had one of my cap. My captains that had worked with me was sent with me. So they let me go walk to Roy, my contractor's room, because he had been brought there too. And so Carrie and I went to his room and uh, we were sitting there talking to him and the curtain comes back on the other bed in the room. And it's, it's a, uh, a Turkish colonel who was the other injured person, the fifth person um, in the crash. He's like, oh, I got hurt when that happened too. And so that evening we sat together, we held hands and we started to talk through what we've been through. We started to heal. We started to, to we, we tapped into each other's resilience to begin that recovery that frankly is the rest of our lives. I mean, you know, when you, when you experience something like this, it's not something you just kind of put in a box and, oh, it's good. I'm, you know, good. It shapes you and inform, it informs who you are for the rest of your life. And I think sometimes our society does a disservice to us when we lose someone that's important to us or we go through a, an experience we think we're supposed to get over it, you know, grieve, get over and move on. That really isn't true. We're always carrying that. My mom passed away seven and a half years ago, eight years ago in, in May, uh, May 1st. And I have not gone over losing my mom. Um, I carry with me. She was one of my guardian angels in that helicopter crash, along with my Air Force mom that I lost that same year. I carry them with me. I don't get over the loss. Nobody does. And then we have the power to help each other carry those things in what we say and what we do and, and helping each other get it, tap into our resiliency. And so we started that that night. It was pretty, you know, didn't really realize what we were doing, but it was pretty profound. So I was up all night that night. I called my dad. I called all my siblings. I called a bunch of other people um, that I vaguely remember. <laughs> I actually looked at my phone. It was more fun to read and go, I called so-and-so. Okay. And then another friend of mine who worked in the Take Control Center, I called him. And what I didn't know is 
that afternoon back here in, in, in Illinois, in the cornfields, um, there was a really significant mission going on. So there were a bunch of generals on a Sunday afternoon in the, the control center watching that unfold. Uh, and as they did that, the crash happens. And so our air medical evacuation folks now are alerted that there's been this crash, there's casualties. And so they start looking at, you know, we're going to need to get some airlift to, to bring Phyllis and Greg home for one and whatever else is going on. Oh, and then there's this female colonel. So I have a friend who has kind of managed the airflow of our C-17s that were deployed over there. He hears about this crash and he hears female colonel and he goes, you know, there aren't too many of those over there. You know, we protect patient information and, you know, all the health regulations and stuff like that. So he goes, he says, I want to know, is it, is it Buff, Laurel, Buff, Raquel? And they kind of go, how do you know that? He's like, what's going on? And their information was I wasn't expected to live. It was obviously grave and whatever. So they, they, they look at it and go, let's get a C-17. So Dan starts working. He goes out to the generals. And I've worked in mobility my entire career. And so these are people I know. And we do airlift and air medical evacuation and dignified transfer for anybody and everybody. But when it's someone you know, it makes a difference. So they're talking about what to do and they're working on waivers and which airplane can we grab and all this. And they're doing all this because it sounds horrible and grave. And so later that evening, dad goes back to his desk and the phone rings at his desk. Hey, Dan, it's Buff. He's like, Buff? <laughs> hey, how are you doing? I'm like, oh. I'm okay. I broke my neck. I'm okay. Hey, you're going to send an airplane to come get me. <laughs> so he's now going, wait a minute. Maybe it's not as bad. And we, you know, have, <laughs> I mean, it was very serious. Um, now I should back up and say that again, jet fuel everywhere. So they cut my uniform off of me. All I literally kept was my underwear. So they went back to my room and they grabbed some stuff, a pair of sweatpants. They grabbed a t-shirt. Uh, they grabbed, you know, a sweatshirt. They grabbed a little bag of some of my stuff. And now I'm a girl that loves baseball hats. I see you have one on there. I have a few hundred baseball hats. I love them. So my captain from Chicago runs, goes back to her room, which is right near this little hospital clinic that I was in, and grabs me a Chicago Blackhawks hat. I am a Red Wings fan. And obviously in the St. Louis area, since I play for the St. Louis Blues Warriors, I am a big Blues fan. And so she grabs this hat for me. And so I put, that's the hat I have on this very iconic photo that, that I'll explain why, it, why it's so iconic. And I'm grateful to have the hat because I had helicopter crash hair. I had, you know, hanging out in the hospital. I had all, you know, so I needed a hat, man. <laughs> so we take this photo of Pat and I, and that photo is iconic. Um, I have a collar on. And the reason that photo is important uh, is because now I'm looking at how do I let my family and friends know I'm okay? I had, I had a robust Facebook presence. Now, how do I let them know I'm okay? Uh, remember, we've got two families that are going to be told that their loved ones aren't with them anymore. Uh, and how is that going to work? You know, uh, I'm mindful that there's a certain timeline. Those are my folks. And so, you know, I, I, I have to respect that process. But I'm also a human being who just survived a really horrific thing. And I need to let my support group know, how does that work? And so I just simply took, put that photo and I put it on Facebook and I wrote one tough bird, Colonel, you know, the rank that I wear is an eagle. So I wrote one tough bird and that way I could proof of life. Yes, I have a collar on, there's something going on, but I'm still, I'm still around. As that was happening, that we were taking that picture, the medical folks come in and say, Hey man, we've got a C-17. They're going to take you up to Germany and we're going to litter you on the plane. And I'm like, Oh no, you're not. You are not, you are not littering me on an airplane. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously still, in shock, still all these things have no idea, don't really understand just how badly broken my neck is, but they let me walk around the freaking hospital. I'm not being littered onto an airplane out there on the flight line. I'm like, no, I like one, I'm a crew member. We don't get littered on planes. If you watch football games or any sports, they want to be, they want to walk off that field. Even if they have to have two guys carrying them on each side as they walk off the field. Two, I walked into this effing country. I want to walk out of this effing country. It was important to me that I walked in, I wanted to walk out. And then three, I lost two people in this crash. I want to respect and honor them by walking out. So let's figure out how we're going to make this happen. So they littered me to the plane, <laughs> let me walk up the ramp, probably all of them freaking out completely as I walked up the ramp. And I walked in and they put my litter on the stanchion and I sort of behaved myself for that flight. I'm not the world's best patient. <laughs> <laughs> so up to up to Ramstein, to Launch Duel. And 
they they talk to me and we do some some CT X-rays whatever. So I have this neurosurgeon and I by this point I knew I broke my neck whatever. They thought also thought I'd broken a bone in my wrist and I was all bashed up and bruised as you can imagine. Um, but I was kicking and walking around and doing stuff. And poor Carrie, my captain, got to go to Germany with me. So now she's my non-medical attendant and she knows how how seriously injured my neck is. And so she's the one that's supposed to help me like take the collar off to take showers and she's not gonna go in the shower with me, but she's there. So I, poor, I felt bad because, you know, she was terrified. What if her colonel slipped in the shower? Because literally if I slipped in the shower, I would have finished the break and killed myself. Not everybody knows who Christopher Reeve is, Superman. He fell off the horse and broke his neck. I have the same injury that he had. It's called a hangman's fracture. So when you're looking at the vertebrae in your neck, mine is the C2, the second one from the top. And when it, and I mean, it was cracked and kind of twisted a little bit, clean through. Um, and that's called a hangman's fracture because when a hangman hangs someone, that's literally what they want to happen to their neck. And so where it was above my windpipe and stuff and, and how dangerous. And then a little bit further down, my C5-6, the disc in between those two vertebrae was, in my medical records, it says herniated. I would tell you it was crushed. Medical folks literally freak out when they see my x-rays because I should not be alive. I should not be playing hockey. I should not have full usage of everything and be reasonably, you know, I have a little bit of stiffness and I crackle a lot in my neck, but and I have no you know, nerve stuff or whatever. So that's my injury. So I have this neurosurgeon, we sit down, I'd heard maybe a collar, maybe surgery. And I should tell you that at the crash, time of the crash, I was 47 years old, never had a surgery or an IV in my life to that point. You know, I'm thinking I'll wear a collar for 12 weeks. That sounds okay. You know, okay, I got it. So we go in, Carrie and I go into his office and we sit down and this guy's a 1993 West Point graduate. He had been an army ranger so I looked at him and went, I probably kicked your rear end out of the back of one of my planes back in the day. Maybe. I mean, it's entirely possible. I, you know, did stuff. So in uh, midway through his career, he says, you know what? I would like to be a doctor. So he decides he wants to go to the military medical school. He does pretty well. So he becomes a neurosurgeon. So he retired a couple of years before I meet him. Uh, and so he's got his goatee, his white lab coat, and on his tab of his light white lab coat is his ranger tab. So, I mean, this guy... Do you really think this guy has bedside manner? No, he does not have bedside manner. This guy does not. But you know what? He has strength and here in his eyes. And I, I focused on that. Uh, and that guy, perfect person at the perfect time for me. He's like, look, we're going to have to put a halo on, which means screws in my skull and, and a vest. I'm going to have to wear that for a few months to stabilize that break. He said, then I'm going to go into your neck here and move your windpipe out of the way, pull out that crushed disc put in a synthetic, a bone plug, a little bone plug thing, and then put a little titanium cover and some screws to keep it in place because that's now going to fuse. And apparently that's a very common surgery for docs and dogs. They have long necks and um, the stress on their necks, they end up having these discs that need to be replaced in this type of surgery. So it's called a discectomy because you take the disc out. Uh, and so while they, they, the first thing they need to do is put that halo on because it, the broken bone was really dangerous. But what also happened with that disc thing is there's an incursion on my spinal uh, cord that when you see that photo, it looks like it's it's a near complete internal decapitation is what they actually call it. And so we saw him on Wednesday, the surgery the, was Tuesday, the 20th. So the crash itself was Monday, the 11th. So I had to, now when he tells me all this, I'm like, what? So I went in on Friday, got measured for the poles and, and the surgery was going to be on Tuesday. Uh, on Saturday, so I'm a Michigan graduate. I'm a big Michigan football fan. I'm really unhappy these last few years, but um, that particular weekend, Michigan played Michigan State, which is our in-state rival, and that was on TV. So I'm watching this game, and the game ends, and, and Michigan should not have punted the ball back to Michigan State, and so we did that foolishly, and they ran it back and won and scored and won the game. I am not happy, so I take this poor phone, and I say a few expletives, and I get up, and I hurl it across the room. Carrie sits up. She's like, oh, my God, my colonel is going to kill herself being upset about this game, you know, because I was livid. Right. I was any, any angry sports fan. And then she goes, wait a minute, maybe this is going to damage government property, which neither one of those things happened. But it was really kind of funny. Fast forward to, to the night before the surgery. If you think I slept, you're wrong. I was terrified. Um, you're going to put they're going to put six screws in my head. We're going to they're going to cut my neck open. They're going to do anything to me that I've never had before. You know, um, and I'm still processing. I've lost people. I've been ripped away from my my work. What I've been doing, you know, 100 days straight, all of that kind of stuff. And so I'm sitting there and one of my friends emails me and he emails me an email from our football coach. 
that he'd written to to Jim Harbaugh. So he kind of outlined what had happened. He said, can you just send her like a note of encouragement, maybe a football? I don't I don't know, just something. And so he sends me this this note and I cannot read it to you without getting very emotional. Um, but basically it says, you know, hey, we just we just had some adversity this weekend. Um, and then I talked to our team about what happened, what's what you're dealing with. And I think they understand that concept a little bit better now. Um, I'm thinking my football team, you know, um, the, the one of the winningest programs in college football doesn't seem like this in the last few years, but actually over, over the course of history, they are. Uh, and to have that coach talk to that team and reference me in that way, that was, it was very powerful. And it was one of the things that kept me going. I got a call from the general who runs Air Mobility Command here. Um, actually, earlier the week before, I got a call from the, the commander of Canadian Forces. Only four Maple Leaf general in the entire Canadian Forces called me because I worked with them um, on the exchange tour. Uh, and so all of those things gave me the courage to walk into the hospital the next morning and say, okay, let's do it. Because um, I was terrified. So I wore the halo for three months. And I didn't just sit in my room uh, doing nothing. My brother came over, the Air Force flew my brother over, and then my network of friends who started to introduce me to people or my friends I had in that area, because I spent three and a half months in Germany um, recovering. I wore the halo for three months, and that was the plan. Let's, let's see how that break comes together. Uh, the fusion will, will start to fuse, which because I wore the halo, the fusion has, has worked magnificently. Some of my friends and people I know who've had the exact same surgery, it's like an, almost like an outpatient surgery. They wear a soft collar. And I don't think they get to keep it immobile long enough for that fusion to happen, uh, like-minded. And so I, I think my that particular part of it healed super well, got a really good start on the fusion process. Um, and so little things like, how do you cut your hair? Went to the salon there at, at Ramstein, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're kind of busy, but give us your phone and we'll call you back. I'm like, okay. So my sister, who came after my brother, um, and so... We go across the, the way to the barber shop, and I walk in. I'm like, "Is anybody willing to cut my hair?" And this one lady's like, "I'll do it." So she cut my hair for me, and that was so important. I mean, there's so many little stories like that of, of just people stepping up for important things. And, and so one of my points, the five points that I have for my story is is get in shape for your life because you never know when you might need it. I started figuring out even when I'm first time I met with a doctor. Well, I said it's gonna be cool. I'm gonna get on the treadmill with that thing on, you know, and, and people freak out. He said, "I've had patients fall off the treadmill." I'm like well, can I ride the exercise bike? And he's like, I don't see why not. I'm like, okay. Um, because I'm not just going to sit in my room and feel sorry for myself. Phyllis and Greg would kick me in my rear end if I did that. And that's just not how I am. Um, you know, fitness is a part is an important part. It's probably part of the reason why I'm here. So I started doing stuff, trying things. So I figured out that planks were okay. Um, push-ups, no, but planks were okay. So before, right before I left in January of 2016, I was up to four-minute planks. Um, actually, I just saw on a Facebook a post the uh, day after the halo came off or two days after the halo came off, um, I did a three minute and 30 plank. So I did, that was what, Wednesday was the 13th. Yeah. Wednesday was the 13th. So I'm like, Oh, I gotta see if I can still do that. So I did, I did a three minute and 40 second plank. Um, and then just sitting in my room feeling sorry for myself. That isn't what happened. We were busy. We were out doing stuff between the USO, the Wounded warrior project and my friends, we went out and did stuff and we went to lots of Christmas markets and we wandered around. We, we made the most of our time there. I, you know, I thought all lot about Phyllis with the German background. She spent time in Germany um, and it was a great place to recover. It was not a vacation, uh, but it was a great place to recover. We went out and we did, you know, some of the tours and trips and that was important. You know, that was an important part of the healing process. A friend taking us out to Luxembourg to Patton, great to the, to the Battle of the Bulge uh, Cemetery where Patton is buried. My dad is a big fan of Patton, uh, and that was a special moment. My dad had never been to Europe before. He came over to help take care of me. Uh, so that was a really cool experience to get to share. You know, Phyllis's oldest sister engaged me because Phyllis came from a big family, and they, she was buried at the Air Force Academy, and they, they flew her siblings to her funeral, but not the siblings' kids. And so they were doing a GoFundMe to fund their children to be able to attend the funeral. And I saw that on Facebook, and I was sitting there in my room going, what can I do to take care of my folks and their families? And I saw that. So I put it on my Facebook page and I told my friends, hey, if you're looking for something, help Phyllis's uh, nieces and nephews come to her funeral. Um, and her sister saw that. And uh, the oldest sister, hey, can I call you? And I'm like, oh, how is this going to go? Because what I've learned also in this journey is grief. There's a spectrum of how people express, deal, and experience grief. Um, and so I had no idea what 
this conversation was going to yell at me. Was she, well, she thanked me for the, putting the post out there. And we became friends and we became much better friends. My dad came over so I could vent to her. My dad's in my room and he's, you know, we became very good friends. Now she's my BFF. Um, and so through our grief journey together, we have become best friends. She and her husband live up in Chicago. I dragged her into hockey. Uh, <laughs> she plays it now too. Um, and we've done a lot of stuff together. We've bonded. And, and so we've taken our, our mutual grief of the loss of her sister and we carry that together. We walk together and we've grown, you know, in our lives together. So out of something tough, you know, some of those things can, can happen. But the hail came off uh, 11 January, just, just five years ago. Um, and then we waited 10 days to see how well did, how did this all work? Uh, and I came back to him and he said, do this my head down, head up to the right, to the left. And he looked at me and went, oh, he said, you're good to go. Three months, six months, 12 months checkup. I'm like, okay. So I was grateful because the, the alternative was to have further fusion surgery, which would turn me more into like Frankenstein would be more of a halo without the halo on the way I would have to turn my body and my neck to turn. I'd have to turn my whole body to turn my neck. And I certainly wasn't rooting. For, I was rooting for the good, the good ending to the story of nothing further. Um, and so that turned out to be the case. So I never did any physical therapy other than what I did down in the gym and wandering around doing my own thing. Um, and so I took an airvac flight on the 28th of January on a C-17 from Stewart Air National Guard Base, a scheduled evacuation flight back to North America with my sister. Um, and so I went back to Canada um, and spoke to the leadership here that I'd worked for. And one of the generals in Air Mobility Command bid for me to come work for him here. So I moved here in June of 2016 back to Illinois. Uh, and I started working at Air Mobility Command, continuing my recovery. Um, I had to wear a collar for a few months just to protect the healing process, not that my neck needed it, but to protect that healing process. And then that eventually went away. Um, I went to a neurosurgeon here in St. Louis in July of 2016. He took his x-rays and said, yeah, you're, you're good to go. Um, really don't have anything for you. Now I had some restrictions as far as deployments, assignments, and, and obviously I was had medical limitations as far as to fly. Uh, and I didn't like that. I'm like, I know I'm a colonel. I know I'm a C-130 navigator. We don't have many of those left in the Air Force. But if the balloon, if something happens and you need navigators to fly, I do not want this to be the reason why I can't go fly. So I work with some of the, um, the flight medicine folks here at Scott to start the waiver process. Now that started when I went into them because when I arrived here, they had placed all these restrictions on me medically. Like I was only supposed to not run more than 100 yards. I wasn't supposed to walk more than a kilometer. I wasn't supposed to this, that, whatever. I'm like, oh, crap. I did that the week that I was in the hospital. <laughs> Every time I got up to go to the bathroom in the, in the hospital, my brother and I would walk around. And I'm sure we exceeded those things way in the first week. And I'm like, I am not doing a fitness test with restrictions. I want a real fitness test. Like I've taken every year of my career. So in September, September 12th of 2016, uh, I did my, my fitness test. And I usually get about a 99 something or another. Um, I can never max the run. My legs are too short. Uh, and so I walked in there and I'm like, I'm here to kick this thing. And I had the shoes that were in my, so my backpack in the helicopter, I got a bunch of that stuff. I got that back, the shoes that were in that, and they smelled like they do sell carry this a little bit of a whiff of jet fuel on them. But I wore those running shoes for that PT test. Um, and a couple other things that were important to me. And I had to wear my air force PT gear for the test, but I scored a 99.1. Um, again, the run <laughs> a little bit slower in the run, but I was there to say, look, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. It's important to me. I, it respects all of the work of all the people that have supported me. And so in the process of kind of working to get those restrictions removed, the medical folks worked that waiver. And so I actually have a waiver to be medically qualified to fly. I cannot fly ejection seat aircraft, but I was, I'm medically qualified to fly again. Again, that was a matter of professional importance to me. And so I got that 366 days after the crash. And the, the flight doc was like, I'm really sorry. I know you wanted it before the year. I said, or he said, but that's a leap year. I'm like, I love that. So on the 12th of October, 2016, I got my waiver to be medically qualified to fly again. It was a point of honor to me, a professional honor to have that back. And so those guys, it was great that they worked and did that for me. And so continue to do my work. So one of the things I started doing was going to Shriners Hospital when my folks linked me up with them to the kids that wear halos. He said, would you be willing to go visit? I'm like, sure. And so I did that. The first visit in December of 2016, I visited this little girl, Lily, in horribly scoliosis. And so that was why she had, had the halo on and they're trying to get her back pre prepared for some surgeries. Don't ever think that I did something for her or these kids. They gave me so much understanding of resilience and that our children 
if we want to lessen resilience and, and just the, the, the natural unfettered beauty, uh, not shackled by all of the cares of adulthood, kids, they don't know they shouldn't be shooting baskets or running around and being energetic with a halo and a, and a, and a, and a cart behind them with weights and stuff. They're doing their stuff. You know, and I mean, it was so uplifting to see her and see the other kids that I got to meet. I really didn't do anything for them. I just got to show them, hey, here's your, here's what the screw holes are going to look like. I brought my screw, when my screws, showed it to them. Uh, I give them a little bottle of the bio oil, which is something that's my neighbors in Canada introduced me to as far as a scar thing and done a pretty good job um, to say, hey, here's, you're going to have this thing that's going to come off your head. Here's something for that next step. And then I brought them an Air Force bear. And the other thing I brought was a, a challenge coin. I brought them a Colonel's challenge coin. And so I explained the whole you know, tradition of, of, of military challenge coins. And so Lily later, because it was Christmas time, she ends up a bunch of folks from the base come to the, to the hospital to deliver Christmas presents. And she coin checked them. Oh, good for her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So those little things that make, you know, that are part of what the, the fabric of our military culture um, you know, I got to share that and pass it on in, in a really cool way. The weight of being an adult in the world can can work against us when we're trying to tap into our own resiliency. Um, and so those little kids are great. Of course, the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program is our program, AFW2, that actually exists to take care of our folks. It's a division within the Air Force Personnel Center down in San Antonio. Not a lot of people know that. So one of the things I love, I like to emphasize that I've learned in this journey is about the spiritual side of hum, of being a human. I got the opportunity in 2017 in May to go on a Warriors to Lords uh, France pilgrimage. And so it's the 59th year of it. It's not something that just started. It's, it's pilgrims from all over the world, 30 different countries, 12 to 15,000 pilgrims come together for a few days at that, at that site to our spiritual journey, to continue to work on our spiritual journey. Do not have to be Catholic. I just happen to be. And I got to go on that trip. But what I took away from that, in addition to the, the really great experiences and the opportunities to in my faith, is that spirituality is inherently human. And we tend to, in society, and I think especially in our military society, conflate religion and spirituality. They're the same. And they are not. Spirit, religion is an expression of spirituality. It is. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we can express our spiritual and that that is a really important component of resiliency. One of my main points, my main point of my everything I talk about is resilience is not an individual sport. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we've cha cha exchanged some emails and gotten to know each other a little bit. So I know you're resilient. I absolutely know that. But you on your own, can't get to all the resilience that's inside of you. you. We need each other to tap into that, that support group, that spiritual connection, whatever those things are, that fitness, whatever those things are, are how we tap into that reservoir of resilience. And sometimes it's easier than others. I would say in the last almost a year now, a lot of people have experienced kind of what it felt like for me when I first got to, to Ramstein to launch Dole. Ripped away from my job. I didn't know what my was going on with my health. Uh, a lot of uncertainty, but my connections kind of lifted me up in this changed life that I found myself in for a while and forever in a lot of ways and to move forward. And that's kind of what we've had to kind of do in the last 10, 11, however many months now. However COVID has impacted you personally, it has impacted your life such that we need each other to, and it's wearying, it's wearying. Every day, every day, every day. It's not like you wake up and it's gone. You know, I can wake up and say, oh, that didn't happen. You know, there's not a day I get to wake up and say that didn't happen. That crash didn't happen. It did. And I have days where sometimes that's weightier than others. There are days when I need to rely on my connections better than others. So um, that's, you know, an important thing. Um, in December of 2017, I went for another checkup of my neck. And at that point, those x-rays showed good healing and stability, the Air Force said, okay, we're removing any restrictions of like deployment or, you know, assignments, whatever. So I did not retire medically. I retired of my own choosing <laughs> with no medical restrictions or constraints. And that was, an, that was a, to me, a victory of the Air Force Wounded Warrior Program and their support that they provided to me from the time I was in Germany and after I got back, because I joined their ambassador program. So telling your story to kind of highlight to the Air Force, because not everybody in the Air Force knows we actually have a program that takes care of folks. So by December of 2017, I knew it was probably time to think about retiring. 
Uh, and so I put in my paperwork. They got that got approved. And I'm like, you know, I really don't want to do a ceremony. I just kind of want to leave. And I had gone to a, um, a a ceremony where my first group commander, the first colonel I worked for, was there. His it was his exact now three star general who was taking command. So I see him. It's the first time I see him since the crash. And he comes up, gives me his hug. He says, "Hey, Buff." He's like, "Hey, I'm getting a Leukemia Lymphoma Society team and trained to hike Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, you'd be great for that." And I said, "Okay, sir." And then I went home and went. What in the world did I just say yes to? Are you kidding me? Kilimanjaro hiking? What? You know, I mean, I like to do stuff, but that's like crazy talk. Africa, 19,000 feet. Am I nuts? But once you say some yes to General Roser, you're not going to say no to him. You know, he's just, he's a, he's a good guy. It's a good cause. So like, all right, you know, I guess I'm going to do this. I need to start training. So at that point, I stopped running and started hiking a lot out here in the cornfields of Illinois, trying to get ready for this craziness I was going to do in October of 2018. Um, and so I saw him at a conference and he said, and I said, you know, I'm going to retire, but I don't want to do anything. He's like, oh, well, let's do it there. I'm like, what? How cool is that? On the top of the mountain? He's like, yeah. I'm like, how cool? Okay, sir, let's do it. So that became the thing. And so as he, more people became part of the team who I know, knew and people he knew. So there was 14 of us on the team and we, October, 2018. Um, and you want to talk about pressure? Yeah, I got to kind of be on the top of that mountain. There can't be any altitude sickness for me or I don't feel good or my hands are too frozen or I have no way I can not be on the top of that mountain. And so, and that's kind of a nerve wracking thing because you do not know how altitude sickness is going to affect you until you actually go do it. But it's fabulous. It was a wonderful experience. We had like the best weather you could possibly imagine. I would never, honestly, I would never want to go back and do it again because you cannot duplicate the gorgeous weather, the perfect, perfect weather that we had. Mind you, the anniversary of the crash is in the middle of all of this. So that was a rough day. I'm out there hiking and I'm you know, experiencing the emotions of the anniversary of the crash. And usually I spend the, that anniversary with Kathy, Phyllis's sister, but of course she's, she did not come with us on the trip. Um, and so 14 October, we summited and we got to do, you know, take all our pictures. We did my ceremony and got that picture. I got to wear a Michigan hat, my ceremony. I didn't have to wear a service dress. I got to do that. Uh, and it was incredible. And, you know, the people who were on part of the team, the Tanzanians were so excited. They thought this was so neat that we were doing this. Uh, I carried an American flag that um, Phyllis's roommate in, in Afghanistan was our public affairs officer, Edie. She's stationed in, in, uh, in um, Hawaii right now. She had flown had a, she was stationed at the pentagon and she had a flag flown for me the first veterans day 2016 so she sent that to me so that's the flag i carried in my backpack and i had a a pocket that was not completely opaque and so as we we're going towards the top a couple of my friends on the team said you know i looked up and saw that in your bag and that's part of what kept me going and this you know this gut check time before the sun rose and we could see things one of the guys our colonel intel colonel he was so excited because he got to use his pillow to proffer my retirement pins. I brought the retirement pin. I printed my orders and got them laminated so he could read the orders. Um, you know, I had my friend, one of my good friends, pin the pin on me. They gave me a retired Air Force retired baseball hat, of course, baseball hat. Uh, and we had all these special things that people were, somebody got to read the orders. General, you know, Roser did his thing. Um, and it was part of our, of our, of our team's, uh, celebration of making the top. And it was just really special. And the team, we raised what, um, over 40, almost $50,000, I think for leukemia lymphoma, which is, you know, the reason we did it, but it's a lesson in uh, one of my, one of my points that I make is that celebrating milestones, yours and other people's, because we need to take time to smell those roses along the road of life. That's one of my, my points in in the story. Um, I had played a little bit of hockey throughout my, my life. You'd think from Michigan, I would have played more hockey than I did, um, but I didn't. Uh, and the USA war- Hockey has a warrior division, which is veterans that have some sort of disability rating. They're not completely, there's not a major amputation or anything like that. They can skate, but they have some sort of VA disability rating or a Purple Heart, uh, and they have an honorable discharge. Um, and St. Louis didn't have a team until early this year. A couple of guys really who play hockey wanted to see if they could get a partnership, and they did. The Blues, St. Louis Blues partnered, and so they started this team, but then COVID happened. Uh, and so in July, we were able to start, they were able to start saying, hey, we're going to start skating and practicing. So I heard about it, and I went out and gave it a try, and I fell completely in love with it. Um, we are the fastest-growing program in the country. Last count, I think it was above 85 players. So the camaraderie that we missed from from our military service, 
uh, the athletics, the competition. Um, and then we have this partnership with the Blues. Like I said, we have some NHL, former NHL players that are coaching us. Um, some of the NHL or the, the, the Blues leadership award presented us with our game jerseys. We haven't been able to play a lot of games yet because of COVID, um, but we practice a lot. We get out there at the Blues practice rink, which has fabulous ice. I am an ice snob now. When I go to other places, I'm like, oh, this ice kind of sucks compared to what we get to stay on. Uh, and their support is absolutely, absolutely amazing. So it's a wonderful program. Um, any veterans that are out there, I know there are, are there are women all over the place that play. It's not limited to only guys. And I love my teammates. That's my hockey family. Some of the guys have actually said that it saved their life as far as, you know, just being dragged down by COVID. Um, fortunately, Missouri is, uh, we're able to play. If we were in Illinois, we wouldn't be able to play right now. Various restrictions like you guys in Los Angeles. Yeah, you're probably not playing hockey right now, um, but you will. It's about the getting in shape for your life. You know, thing, that's another one of my points, um, you know, and for yourself and to help others. You never know when you might be the person who needs to help get that person out of that helicopter. A couple of my other points, bloom wherever life and your career plants you. Look for and leverage the good of your situation. You know, even when I'm, you know, dealing with the loss of folks and whatever, looking for the good of that. Well, I was in Germany, Christmas markets. Um, and there's always some sort of good in even the worst of experiences. You know, um, there, there, there is, and sometimes it's hard. You need to acknowledge the hard stuff, but looking for the good. And then dynamic excellence is something I've come up with nurture and be dynamic excellence. A true measure of leaders, whether they grow people themselves to their potential and beyond. So how can you be doing that with respect to resilience? Um, how are we nurturing each other's resilience and helping us grow into our potential to lead in whatever role we, we are uh, have in life? How are we doing that? Because every day is not a bed of roses. There's no, I will tell you that there's days where what happened five years ago affects me harder and deeper than other days. Right before I crashed, a C-130 crashed in, in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, about 10 days before I crashed. And I knew, I think I knew some, one of, at least one of the people, but it rocked my community. And it was heavy. Um, and I was going through Facebook and just kind of seeing how some people were processing that. And one of the things I saw was this really great slide. And it's got Snoopy and Charlie Brown. They're sitting on a, a dock. And you can see them from the back. And it looks they're looking out over a lake. It's at night. And there's stars and stuff. And the quote there says, sometimes we need someone to simply be there, not to fix anything or to do anything in particular, but just to let us feel that we are cared for and supported. And it's attributed to unknown. Uh, and that's a slide that's in all my presentations. Um, and and it's, it's what are we doing for each other that we feel that? And so the point of my whole story and all of that is everyone has an amazing and valuable story. So I challenge my audiences always is to go out and do something good with that and, and make that impact. And, and let me know that, that what I'm doing telling this makes an impact because it it validates that. It keeps me moving forward to know that that it matters to people. You know, I think that's why perhaps I'm still around because, you know, people, you know, oh, you must have a purpose. I'm like, hmm, yeah, yeah. It's to hopefully watch Michigan win the national championship someday before I'm like 100 years old. But, but it's to, you know, take this and do something good with it. Try to remind people that, that our resilience is here, but we help each other unlock it. Woo, buff. I mean, thank you for sharing all that. I connect so strongly to your themes of resiliency with finding meaning, connecting with others, caring for oneself, um, finding the silver lining in every situation, uh, communication and participation. And one of my burning questions is, hockey is such an aggressive sport. Aren't you scared to play with your neck injury? My dad. <laughs> my dad's scared. <laughs> yeah. My daddy's like, don't worry about you. I'm like, dad, I, I wear, I got good padding. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, you really don't live in fear. I mean, even getting on an airplane to fly to Africa to hike Kilimanjaro, you really have so much resiliency. It's inspiring. Yeah, thank you again. So my last question is what I ask at the end of every episode. Uh, if a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? The first thing is what what's the passion that's that's driving that interest? Uh, that then informs the type of advice. Or for me, is who do I connect her to? Are you talking officer? Are you talking you know what branch? What what 
So what branch? Okay, why, why, why are you thinking about that branch? You know, is there some family history there? Is there, you know, a career field? Is it uh, you want to serve your country? You don't really care. I mean, getting kind of to know that person better to know, to have a better inform the advice and the connections I would offer her. Again, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story today. My privilege and honor. It's awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. And one thing I need to say is you've helped me continue to heal. Every time I have the opportunity to share parts of the story, it, it helps me heal because that's a lifelong journey is my healing is a lifelong journey. And so every time I have that chance, um, it helps me heal too. So every audience I have the opportunity to tell it to, whether I see them or I don't, I tell them thank you. Buff, thank you again. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year.